Hey everybody, welcome back. It's me, Matt Tinney, and today I have... Ben Melendrez. And I don't even know how to start this podcast. <laughs> ben was just making fun of a uh, uh, contact we had. I guess not a call for service, but a professional meeting, right? Yeah, it was professional. Well, didn't what, start that way. What is the etiquette about... I mean, if you meet somebody new, you shake their hand, right? Sure. Man or woman. Correct. Shake. Hi, how's it going? You introduce yourself. Hey, it's me, Matt, right? Right. I do that all the time. Hey, it's me, Matt. I'm with you. Yeah. What What transpired when I did that? They said... Or how about this? Before we even jump in, have you heard of different ways to like remember names? Yeah, like, like mnemonic right, the voice. Right, right. Yeah. When someone says it, like either like you repeat the name back to them or you come up with... Like a rhyme. Right. Yeah. Or maybe a feature sure. about somebody. Yeah, feature. Um, you know, have you ever done this? No, I, I haven't because I'm professional. You don't remember. How do you remember people's names? I'm really bad at this. <clears throat> I am also very bad at this. I, uh, I'll have to say their name over and over in my head if I really want to remember what their name is. Right. There's a, a gentleman that we work named Vic, and he is great about name recognition. But I always notice, like, when he first meets you, he'll be like, hey, I'm Matt. He'll be like, oh, Matt, how's it going? So nice to meet you, Matt. How long have you been here, Matt? He'll, like, say your name that's multiple a, times. That's a good idea, actually. I'm, I suck at it. But I will always remember this woman because of how she remembered my name. <laughs> Mission so, accomplished. So we go out there. We're like, hey, how's it going? I'm Matt. This is Ben. She shakes my hand. And, and what does she go on to say? She says, oh, hey, little Matt. Hey, little Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even awesome. sure that, that it happened. I had to look over at you like, did that just happen? Oh, it did. And forever I will be, hey, little Matt. You will indeed. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little hurtful. Mm-hmm. And she didn't say anything cool about your name. No, but if you guys have any questions, you can email them at littlematt at cabq.com. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it wasn't like, hey, Big Ben, or hey, normal-sized guy named Ben. No, it was just like, oh, hey, little Matt. It was very strange. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was shocking to me. Yeah. And you were just talking about storm chasers? What what is this? First off, what is a storm is it called a storm chaser or is it some super fancy name that they I'm use? not sure what they're called, but it's basically the people that will look up condi- weather conditions in hopes that a tornado forms so they can be there and film it. But they've gone one step further apparently and now they people pay them like tourists pay them to get a ride close up to a tornado. So, I mean, I've seen some of their vehicles. It's pretty intricate. I mean, they have tons of equipment. How much does that cost? Well, these vehicles were just like Chevy Astro vans. So, <laughs> I guess whatever that, that um, costs. That is a top of the line vehicle. Okay. Van. Well, have you been in an Astro van? No. No. Okay. Yeah. I believe when I grew up, we had an Astro van. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, great childhood memories in our brown van. So little Matt. Little Matt in his brown van. Wait, so these people are paying someone to just be taken to, like, the eye of the storm? Yeah, which is, uh, I don't know, for me it was like, these people are paying to see a tornado destroy other people's lives, right? Right. They're like, oh, look at how cool that house is being destroyed. I'm like, that's somebody's house. There goes someone's childhood memories. (laughs) Yeah, and these people are really excited, so. I don't know. It was it was weird to see that. So why is that different than like watching other like destruction, like watching oh there's a fire or there's a flood? Let's turn to the whatever twenty four hour news and try to see it. It would be like if there was a 
tsunami coming to hit your wherever you live. Right. And people were charging other people to come there and watch it happen. Yeah, it's... Uh... Or like if Godzilla was attacking wherever you live, right? And lots of people were losing their property and to this giant irradiated lizard. Right. And then other people were charged. Hey, you want to see a lizard destroy other people's lives? All right, first Give off, me $10. bad example. You're telling me if Godzilla was real, you would not want to see Godzilla. If, if yeah. Godzilla was real? Okay, when he's rediscovered. I've seen documentaries on Godzilla. <laughs> Are you telling me that you would not pay to see an actual Godzilla? No. You wouldn't? You, no. We, we would have to fight it. I mean... <laughs> Not if you're, like, viewing from Not afar. revel and its destruction of other people's property. How many people do you think truly believe Godzilla's real? Uh, counting me? Two. A billion? Where do... <laughs> don't, don't, don't do Where... it. I can't stop laughing. Where do you think Godzilla lives right now? What do you mean? Where, where does he live? In, in the ocean, right? He just... What does he eat in the ocean? I don't know. Does Godzilla live in the ocean? I thought he was land-dwelling. No, he, he comes out of the ocean to attack people. Have you seen the documentary? It just came out a couple of years ago. It's called I haven't Godzilla. Seen no. Yeah. I haven't seen it's the based documentary. Based on true, true events. So this giant radiated lizard yeah. appears from the ocean mm-hmm. and then just eats people or no, just he, destroys yeah, he, things? He has an agenda. Is his agenda like feeding like I think it's hungry? just terrorism, right? He's a, he's a terrorist. Well, can an animal be a terrorist? Yeah. Because an animal has an agenda of terrorism? Yeah. He, so he wasn't he's, eating, he was just terrorizing people. So he's such well-developed brain as a lizard, yeah. he can actually... His brain's probably like three stories in height. <laughs> so people believe that this Godzilla lives in the ocean. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And what else happened in this documentary? <clears throat> the I think like this crack squad of commandos okay. like formed together and they fought it off or there was one iteration of this documentary where they built giant robots to fight Godzilla. Okay. Yeah. Where are these robots now? I don't know. Did the robots win? Yeah. What then Godzilla doesn't exist. He was killed? I don't know. Is Godzilla a a male or female? That's a good question. I don't know. I didn't check its nether regions. You you couldn't tell by looking at it? No. You shouldn't assume gender, Matt. Well, some lizards show it by their their well, how they're viewed. But you need to ask them like what how what they identify as. Did anyone ask Godzilla that? I don't think they so. They just started trying to kill it. They were mostly trying to survive. But if th- this is very strange and I'm I'm very concerned about you, Ben. Why? You're Godzilla. I don't think Godzilla is real. Okay. Well, you shouldn't be concerned for me because I don't live in an area typically attacked by Godzilla. It's because we don't have yeah. water here. He's not going to appear out of Elephant Butte, right? Or the desert in New Mexico. I guess you never know. Yeah. It. That is quite concerning to me. Yeah. What is the Loch Ness monster then? A different creature? So that one's completely made up. Don't let them fool you. So the Loch Ness is fake. I actually don't know if it's fake or not. I, but the Loch Ness isn't associated with danger. Mm, I don't think so. I think he's mostly just kind of benevolent. Just lives in the in the Loch in Scotland, just minding his own business. Why is he called Ness? Ness is like short for Nessie, I think, which is its name. 
and the loch is like I guess what where it lives. Scottish people call lakes because they're confused about English. <laughs> so it's the Loch Nessie name monster. Yeah, I think so. I, I actually don't know where Ness came from. Maybe that's actually the name of the light, the lake. That would probably make more sense. <laughs> Wait, so Loch Ness not real? I don't know. Or you're fifty fifty. Yeah, I don't. But your interpretation of the sightings of it isn't dangerous, just bizarre. Yeah, it seems pretty benevolent. Bigfoot. What about it? Real? Not real? Mm, I don't think so. My thing is, it's either not real, or the actual Bigfoot is really blurry in real life. And that's why no one can take a clear picture of him, because he's just actually blurry. How far... I mean, what's the closest picture they've taken of him? I don't know, but every picture I've seen is blurry. Niels can't take a normal picture with his cell phone. Yeah. It's all blurry. So I could see how pictures would be blurry. Right, but all of them? These are like professional photographers going out for this specific instance of catching Bigfoot (laughs) on camera, and it's blurry. I guess that's a great point, and that's a great point. Maybe he's fast. Maybe he's blurry. It could be. Yeah. Some animals might have that. Sure. Right? Like a type of natural camouflage? Yeah, which is blurry. What about chupacabra? Is that the goat thing? Yeah, the goat sucker or whatever. So, are you asking if I think it's real? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably. Bigfoot, no. Chupacabra, yes. Well, no, I said Bigfoot is either doesn't exist or he's blurry. Okay. (laughs) One or the other, okay. Yeah, Chupacabra, I don't know much about that. I think it kills cattle randomly, sucks out their blood. That sounds like human beings killing cattle and And sucking out their blood. Some people like their steaks rare. That's a very good point. Yeah. Is that how you like your steaks? I'm more of a medium rare guy. I don't like well done, but I don't like rare either. I can only eat it well done. That's weird, man. You're missing out on a lot of the flavor. My wife hates it. Do you put ketchup on your steaks? How else do you eat a steak? Oh, my God. I do not put ketchup on a steak. (laughs) Okay, good. But my wife hates it because if I order a well done steak, her meal comes like 30 minutes later. You're that guy. She's angry. Yeah. You're the guy that goes to a famous hamburger place. And then what do you order? Chicken tenders. Or Frito pie. I like Frito pies. What's wrong with Frito pies? Nothing. If you're going to a Frito pie place. There's no such thing. But if the name of the restaurant includes the word burger, burger and you've never been there before. Okay, but my idea was on top of it. Because there was a long line, uh-huh. and I said it would probably be quicker to order something that's not what everyone's ordering, which is a burger. Well, let me ask you this. Was it, in fact, quicker? No. My okay. my experiment proved, in <laughs> fact, that it was not quicker. So, therefore, I ordered a burger the next time. Yeah. So, was it? Was it good? Yeah. I grew. Probably yeah. not one of the top five that's, burgers. That's in science, right? Maybe Ooh. top five. Learn from your mistakes. Reevaluate your experiment. What about... What's the ditch witch lady? Uh, what is her name? La La Rona or something? Yeah, something like that. Real? Not real. No, nah, I think that's more of like a propaganda campaign to keep kids out, out of the, the ditches. ditches. Yeah. But didn't she like just eat you if you were on the ditch banks? Mm, is that how the story goes? I don't know. I don't know. I think that one's propaganda. Because it's reference a ghost. No, because it's like obviously has like a learning objective for kids. Like, so does the other ones. Well, Godzilla Big, has a learning objective. Yeah, stay away from drugs. Right? Because that's the only time you see him? Well, because he was nuked with drugs. No, no, no. Yeah. It was a nuclear accident 
that yeah. led to people using narcotics and seeing Godzilla. I agree with you 100%. It's an anti-drug campaign. I'm starting to get the feeling that you don't think Godzilla is real. It's concerning. What about Bigfoot? It's Big a propaganda. Well, against what? Staying out of the forest? No, to stop eating bacon. Do you think he's made of pork? Yes. Um, Not pork, bacon. Isn't bacon from Bigfoot? Bacon's from pigs. It's no, it's not. That's like where you get pork chops, things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, pigs. Bacon's not a pork. It's a bacon. And I think bacon's from a Bigfoot. It's from it's from pigs. I, I don't... Yeah. What part of the pig is a bacon? Like the bacon part? Which, which is what part? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's uh, Abdullah Oblongata. Do you like turkey bacon? I do. I love turkey bacon. Would you eat it over bacon bacon? I try to avoid eating pork at all costs. I guess that's true. You don't like pork. I like pigs. They're really smart. Except for if you're eating a ham sandwich. I did eat a ham sandwich one time in your presence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love pigs. I'll never eat them. Oh, gobbling up a ham well, sandwich. Listen, this is a really good ham sandwich. From a Mexican food restaurant. I know. It's, it's the strangest thing. And it wasn't even like a spin on Mexican food. No, it was just a good yeah. old ham and cheese sandwich. It's just like, I'll take enchiladas. Fries. I'll take a ham and cheese sandwich with fries. And you make fun of me for ordering off the children's menu. Well, you are little Matt. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so the last time you were on, you had just started with the unit? Yeah, that's correct. That's almost a year ago now. Yeah. So things are moving forward. Yeah. You went from doing visits to now kind of overseeing, developing a bunch of training and outreach stuff. Yeah, it's definitely been a big change from what I thought I would be doing when I first joined the unit. What do you think is the hardest part? Or what's the easiest first? Uh, I think, at least for me, the easiest part was some of the more academic things we have to do, just because I had previous experience in academia. So, like, the needs assessment and the writing curriculum um, came a little bit more naturally to me than I think for some people. Yeah. No, you're a good writer. And what's been the most difficult or challenging? Uh, Just, like, the amount of work there is is, like... Like in the in the, as a uniformed police officer, you stay pretty busy, especially now here in Albuquerque, where there's a shortage of officers. But this is like, you know, work that just keeps piling up if you don't get to it. Unlike right. uniformed officers, so there's just always that stress of like, oh, I got this long list of things to do, and I only have a certain amount of time to do it. So it's been challenging to manage that. And I guess it's always uh, one project on top of the other. Yeah. And it's never can really accomplish one. Yeah. And another th- another difficult thing for me to get used to is the fact that you're in meetings with high-ranking uh, police officials. Yeah. That's something you n- almost never experience in the in the field unless you're in trouble. <laughs> That's true. So now it's like you have the ear of, you know, deputy chiefs and high-ranking officials. It's it's quite a change. I guess that is true. It it's hard to get used to on. Yeah. So do you see successful programs having to have dedicated folks then in this area of outreach training and whatnot? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you mean as far as like uh, detectives and yeah, or full-time employees. Yeah. I think for a, for a successful CIT program, you need a couple of, at least a couple of people dedicated depending on the size of your organization. But I mean, there really has to be uh, people that are willing to make contact with your, your, your community partners and run that. And then if you have a teaching element, that's a whole new thing. It would be very hard to have 
additional duties on top of that and still be able to keep it. Right, as collateral? Yeah. Seems like a lot of places have that, but I don't quite know if the standards we put on curriculum and whatnot are higher, which I'm starting to feel like they are. Yeah, and I think that's the advantage of having full-time employees is we can have those higher standards, whereas people that are just kind of given this as a, a supplemental duty have to just get by with what they can do, you know? Right. So, I mean, you have to, it has to come from somewhere, either the quality or the quantity or what. So what are your goals then for this unit? Uh, didn't you tell me I had a goal one time? I did. What I was that? Everyone is to change the world. Change the world. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more modest in mind. Maybe change the department. I like that. Yeah. We'll start there, and then. I yeah no no maybe the you got to look bigger. Yeah. You're about to do something that uh, could have an impact on the world. What's that? You're going to go and give a presentation to a whole other avenue that's non law enforcement. That's about true. This. That's true. Um, we're going to be going to the American Psychiatric Association's conference in New York. Um, as far as I know, we're one of the only non-psychiatrists that are going to be presenting there. Right. Um, so it's, a, it's an honor, and hopefully it'll it'll be good. We'll have some good yeah. things to say, some good information to share. That's out in May. So if any of you guys are going to that conference, stop by and check and meet with us and Come by and listen to our stories on it if you guys can. We'd love to meet you guys. We're going to be giving a, a a talk on the CIT Echo, which is normally, well, you guys will hear a didactic from it when you guys are done listening to us nanner jacking around. <laughs> and then we're also going to be giving a presentation about, you know, blending the roles of psychiatry with law enforcement. Yeah. So the chair of the Department of Psychiatry, um, Dr. Towen will be there, Mauricio Towen, Dr. Rosenbaum, Nils Rosenbaum, Nancy Martin, Dan Duhigg. Be us, Dr. Burad, Danny Burad. He's a resident out here. Jen Earhart will be out there. Hope to see some of you guys there. It's a great opportunity to meet and greet. Yeah, it sounds, uh, I mean, I, I think that the blending of psychology and law enforcement is kind of a hot topic in the country right now and will continue to be um, until we get, you know, better resources for people that are living with mental illness. Uh, so it should be great. Right. And I think, you know, it's nice to have these other psychiatrists going to teach other psychiatrists because I think it's a it's a different model of psychiatry that's kind of expanding. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that it takes away some of the fear of liability or, you know, how do we successfully work with law enforcement right. to better help the stuff? Because, I mean, it's unfortunate that at least here in America and Canada and Australia and England, I'm just trying to think of all the places – it, law enforcement's become a pretty big branch of the mental health field. Yeah, definitely I mean, has. It, it's like that's your first responders to psychosis and getting people linked to services. Yeah, for sure. And um, like you said, working with law enforcement for those who never have that, uh, it's definitely probably a very strange experience. Right. Law enforcement personnel typically you know, are their own breed for sure. So like you said, it would be, it's going to be very helpful for other psychiatrists to hear the point of view from hours that work with us closely how to accomplish that right on the last note here before we wrap this one up we finally got back our uh, little meeting space here and you say it stinks i would it, like you to describe what you were experiencing to the listeners right now. sure uh, i'd be happy to just to get you guys you know uh, a good feel for what's going on in here it smells like if you left you know some food in a room in which the air never circulated um, and then a thousand years later, 
you opened it. You, you opened the sealed room, and that's kind of the smell we're getting now. Do you think we're, like, inhaling mold? Maybe we're getting, like, some kind of new form of penicillin or something. Yeah, or... We're going to get very sick. Yeah. It's one way This is how the zombie apocalypse starts. Look, it all started in one room with no circulation. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, kind of disgusting. I imagine, like, an archaeologist that first opened King Tut's tomb. This is what it would smell like, yeah, isn't it? That's the first smell that hit him. Don't you think other people would be complaining? Isn't it leaking out of the office somewhere? No, there's no air movement in this room. This is its, it's own just, environment. You don't think it's I'm going somewhere I'm concerned that else? we're running out of air as oh we speak. Well, everybody, thank you guys for listening. Up next will be a didactic from the CIT Echo. If you guys would like more on that, check it out at gocit.org. You guys can also email Jin for more, and that's J-E-A-R-H-E-H. J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at cabq.gov or hit me up at info at gocit.org. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Okay, so we're starting the lecture. Hello, everybody. My name is Niels Rosema. I'm the psychiatrist. I work with the Baker Health Division of the APD. Um, thank you for letting me present today. We're going to be talking about street killers and pseudo-commandos. Uh, it, it's really about mass murder. The, the definitions aren't... Um, well defined. So we'll start with the definitions. And please, if you have questions as we go along, just ask. There's sometimes a little bit of a delay when there's a question, but I will do my best to uh, be interrupted and answer questions because I think that's what makes these kind of lectures worthwhile. And that's true from the audience here too. So first, just to start with definitions so we know what we're talking about. So, you know, I, I looked a lot into these, and it's actually hard to find good definitions. And, you know, FBI has meetings, and they come up with definitions of serial killers. It's kind of macabre. So they're not very good definitions, but these are the ones that I've come across. So a serial killer has a cooling off period. So if I'm a serial killer, I kill somebody, you know, and then I wait around. I'm not a serial killer. And then I wait around. <laughs> and then uh, I later will kill somebody else. So you have to kill at least two people in sort of that manner. Um, a mass murder is a very broad subject. So that can be anything from someone with, who has politically motivated, terrorists, uh, cults, um, and that also includes spree killers so, and um, family annihilators, people who just kill everybody in their family. And they, they have different patterns, and they're hard to sort of pin down. But what makes a, a spree killer a spree killer is uh, – Two locations, really, is the main thing. So they have to kill a certain amount of people, and it has to be in two locations. So it also goes by other names, autogenic massacre, um, multiple people, multiple locations. Um, a rampage killer is probably a better term for the talk today. That's people who just – it's sort of the classic. You, they snap, and they start killing people. The ones that are on the news, the school shooters – those kind of people. That's the ones we're talking about most, although they are all intertwined. Sometimes the, the difference between a, uh, a politically motivated mass murderer and one that seems more like a Columbine shooting can be very difficult to tease apart at times. Um, and murder-suicide is an important concept and unfortunately is not that uncommon. It's usually in the context of a family. So, um, the father is depressed, loses his job, is suicidal, and he is also narcissistic, which means he thinks he's the most important thing in the world, and he's had this sort of blow. And so he says, I'm going to kill the children for their benefit, because without me, they're not going to make it. So they 
they kill their children, they kill their wife, and then they kill themselves. Um, so that's the most common form of this kind of I just snapped. People are most likely to kill people they know and love. And then next most likely to kill acquaintances and strangers is the most unlikely of all murders, suicides. So the pseudo-commando is the one that I think I have a, I think we have interest in because that's the one that's um, the one that the police might come across more frequently. Um, and they're the ones that make the news. And, and part of the reason they make the news is because that's part of the prototype. They want to make the news. They want to go out in a blaze of glory. They want to be well known. Um, so we'll talk about a few different individual cases as well. Does any, before I go on, does anybody have questions? Um, Dan, do you have a question? So are any of these legal terms or these I, are just kind of industry terms, so to speak? That's a great question. So what I just read yesterday was about the FBI definitions of um, mass uh, of serial killer, which we one would think is the easiest one to define because it has that cooling off period. It has a pattern. Um, and there's no, they have their definition, but I don't think there's ever been a law because I that's what they wrote. There's never been a law passed with a definition of, of what a serial killer is. Anything else? And don't forget for questions, if you're on my phone, it's star six to mute and unmute. So now just a little bit about the history. Oh, boy. So um, there's a term called running amok. It's made it into the common vernacular, which means like this company is running amok. No one's in charge. Everything's going to shit. It's a nightmare. Um, but running them up, the term amok is, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, is an old term for uh, people who kind of snap and murder people. It's usually with a machete. It's, it's a culturally bound um, phenomena that happens in Malaysia. So some guy who's sort of brooding and feels slighted, maybe he was insulted or he's kind of an outcast, he kind of flips out, gets his machete, and starts killing people. And it's sort of known that this is part of that culture. Um, and he kills people with a machete until someone kills him. Um, and fortunately, a machete doesn't kill as many people as a gun, but the phenomena is eerily similar to school shootings and other things where people are outcasts, they kind of plan, and then they go on a murder-suicide run. Um, the other big turning point when people look at the history, unfortunately, these things have been happening in all cultures um, for a long time. And they've been happening in the United States. School shootings and murders happened before Columbine. But in terms of the recent history and the recent publicity, the biggest one, people recognize this guy? Whitman. Yes. That's Whitman. Texas Tower. So he's the one that killed people from the Texas Tower. And he's a really interesting case for a lot of reasons. One, because he is the first one sort of in America that kind of made the um, the prototype. The guy who snaps is just starting people. Um, he also planned out his murder. He was a uh, a spree killer by definition because he killed his wife and his um mother before he went into the clock tower and he had plenty of ammunition and he expected to die 
Um, and he was an ex-Marine, and he was a good shot, and he only shot people once because he was a Marine, one shot, one kill, and he was unfortunately quite good at it. Um, and eventually they – this was before SWAT, anything like that. And so they, they got to him, and they, they killed him. So his is a great case for showing that the pattern is really, really difficult. There really isn't a great pattern because he doesn't fit a pattern either, even though he is sort of the first one that set the ball rolling in sort of cultural icons. He, he uh, was having headaches before this. He was acting irritable. He didn't understand why he was having all these awful, disturbing thoughts. When he wrote the uh, note about killing his wife and mother, he was somewhat matter-of-fact about it and said that he loved them and that he wanted to, he wanted to sort of spare them some of the indignation. He talked about his, uh, uh, his will. And one of the things that was very interesting is he said, there's got to be a reason for this that I'm not aware of. I want you to do an autopsy on my body. Hmm. And so they, in fact, did do an autopsy on him, and they found a tumor in his uh, right near his amygdala and there's been a lot of debate back and forth about is that the cause of what happened and i kind of fall on the side of yes um it certainly was a contributing factor and i fall on that side if, if he didn't have that tumor it would not have happened um had someone else gotten the tumor they may not have done it either um but it just shows that he doesn't fit the pattern you never know what's going to happen or, or the reason and it also is good because with more modern technology, we may have been able to identify him and treat him. There's the actual tower where he was up, perched up on top. That was his selfie before he did it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What kind of filter is that? I don't know. It's like a glamour show. Okay. People recognize that kid, unfortunately, right? Yeah. The one Connecticut. Yes, Connecticut. That's uh, Lanza. He's another one that doesn't quite fit. That's not Bill Gates. I don't know why I'm starting with exceptions, but he's another one that doesn't quite fit the pseudo-commando killer spree. And I'll talk more about him and how the there's a theory put forward by one guy, basically, that it's expanding. The, the people who are doing it are, are, are changing as it's becoming more and more popular, unfortunately. Um, so this guy, it was a spree killer because he killed his mom and then he went to the school and started killing children. Looking back on his sort of psychological autopsy, all they could really find was possible autism spectrum disorder, which was very surprising to most people in the mental health field because that's not associated with um, violence. And so that's something we'll talk about near the end of this lecture. But he wasn't that age when he did it, was he? No, he was older. He was 19. This is just sort of him cute before everything went off the rails. Yeah. So this is another one that's really interesting. I don't know if anybody's heard of this guy. His name is John Ledoux. So uh, a famous writer just did a, did a piece on him, and I'll talk about that. Uh, this guy was actually planning a murder, and it didn't happen. So what? it's an interesting story because – he, he was just walking through a woman's yard going towards his storage facility. And a woman is like, that kid it just looks a little weird. You know, he's walking through the yard as opposed to going down, you know, the normal way. And he's walking through puddles instead of around them. And she's like, that's just weird. So she called the police. The police saw he was holding this big box of red material. And they got suspicious. And they started talking to him. 
And uh, one of them asked, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And he said to them, well, guess. And one of the cops said, I think you're planning to make a bomb. And he's like, yeah, I am. And so that already doesn't fit the stereotype. So he told the cops and they interviewed him at great length. Um, and he just didn't fit the, the stereotype. And he, it was April, it was the end of April. And he was planning on doing this murder before the end of the school year. So had the cops not intervened and asked those kind of questions, it, the, the psychologists who interviewed him were all three or four of them interviewed him and they were all convinced, yeah, this guy was going to do it. That they they were clear. And, uh, they also couldn't find a diagnosable mental illness with him. What they, they, the best they could come up with is he's autism spectrum disorder, which was another sort of jarring thing for them to see because he didn't fit the stereotype. And we'll, we'll revisit him because that's, um, it's an interesting case. And it's a good one because it got thwarted. Okay, so this guy, anybody know who this is? Matt King. Matt King. Matt King. <laughs> I had the picture of Matt and him up side by side. Here, show everybody your I'm picture. Not showing show them your picture. No, what? <laughs> Bring your picture to the camera. No. Let's see. No, I'm this one here. Does it show? I won't even zoom. You, you're lucky, man. There, there is, there is. See, it's uh, Matt Tinney. Very much. <laughs> you guys are mean, mean people. The reason he wasn't a spree killer by definition was that he um, he only killed in one spot. Uh, he killed uh, Gabrielle Giffords. I mean, then killer shot her and killed a bunch of other people. He's also interesting because he fits into the per the smaller percentage of people who actually had were are thought to have a diagnosable diagnosable serious mental illness, schizophrenia. Most spree and mass killers do not. The large majority do not. And even the ones that fit that sort of spree killer um, subtype, only about 25% of them are diagnosably mentally ill. So pseudo-commando. This, this is the sort of prototype that we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about. So this is the guy... Virginia Tech, very good. This is the Virginia Tech guy, and he left. He he sort of followed the the script down to the T. The the part of the script is you'd make a video, you point your guns at the camera, you make a suicidal gesture to yourself, and you make some kind of victorious uh, gesture, and that's part of the script. The video, and then fascination with guns, the the feeling that you've been left out by society. This is where that sort of uh, parallel to a muck comes in um, and they're all very not all but they have sort of narcissistic tendencies and I'll talk a little bit more about that so here's a, a bit about the mindset of somebody who who uh, goes on a spree uh, a mass murder a rampage killing so this is a quote and I'll just read it to the last I grapple with thee from hell's heart I stab at thee for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee I give up the spear anybody Want to guess where that's from? That would be impressive. Rathacon. Don't forget if you guys are on uh, by, by phone, it starts six to unmute. All right, I will just tell you. I'm pretty sure it's Macbeth, isn't it? It's a very, that's what I thought it was, honestly. Uh, it's, um, and it's interesting you bring that up because Macbeth has a lot of themes about revenge and being slighted. And... This idea of, of revenge as being justifiable has been part of our society for a long time. 
that it's okay. If, you, if you're going to kill somebody, but you do it for revenge, then that's okay. Um, and that's still in our psyche to this day. Well, he killed him, but that guy was messing with his wife or something. So it's understandable. Um, but these guys have the same kind of thinking that they've been wronged. So revenge is a, is a, is a psychological construct that it seems fair. This is actually from Herman Melville from um, Moby Dick. So this is him stabbing Moby Dick with a spear, knowing that he's going to die. So he, he sort of took Moby. It was a murder-suicide of the whale that had been torturing him. The one on the bottom is from Cho, the guy, the, this guy. Um, All the shit you've given me right back at you with hollow points. Basically the exact same sentiment, right? Uh, you, you, you ruined my life. This is what you deserve. And he knew he was going down to. So more about that. Um, so if you look at sort of the game of life, some people become, uh, have narcissism. And narcissism is a pretty common term. Just everybody should have some healthy narcissism. I'm, I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm worthwhile. That's fine. Some people have more narcissism than others. And if you have a sort of overextended narcissism without any backing, so to speak, uh, you're at more uh, risk for a narcissistic blow. And what a narcissistic blow is, I think I'm the greatest gift to women, and then I go and I ask somebody out, and she's like, laughs at my face. And that's a, a sort of a kind of theme that runs through a lot of these rampage killers. It's that narcissistic blow. And so it, it brings up these kind of nihilistic, which means I just want the whole world to burn down. I don't care about anything. And that that's very regressive, meaning that and I read a good article about this by the, the editor of the DSM who said that these folks are like uh, children losing a checkers game and they tip over the table. Well, you guys cheat and this is stupid and it's not fair and you're persecuting me. And they knock over the table. But instead of doing that, they go on a rampage kill, which is a little worse than knocking over the table. Um, and the other thing that they often have in common is kind of a, a fascination with the killing, with the guns. These are um, – they, they – they also have a, often have a fascination with the other shooters who've done it. Like Cho said that he, he made reference to brothers in arms, and they often make reference to other specific uh, school shooters. Um, they also have a – if they don't have frank psychosis like um, Loughner, they sometimes have um, magical thinking, which is also a childhood stage of development. It's normal as a child to have magical thinking. Oh, Santa Claus is real. Um, you know, I'm playing this game and I have a imaginary friend and this kind of stuff. That's sort of magical. It's not quite way out there crazy, but it's just kind of these beliefs that don't kind of hold together. So they often have that. Um, the other is they feel uh, justified. Um, so even Cho compared himself to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm dying for the behalf of everybody else. I'm going out and I'm going to absorb all this suffering and people are going to look up to me and, and revere me at some time. Okay. So we talked a little bit about this, but I think it's worth talking a tiny bit more. So how much of a link is there to mental illness? And this is where it gets very tricky. And this is that article by um, the, the editor of the DSM is there's a big in psychiatry in general, there's a big debate about where does pathology begin and where does normal end and how much is, moral shortcomings and how much is, is um, you know, pathology. So you have Whitman who had a brain tumor. That seems to me more uh, sort of medically based, psychiatrically based. Um, 
But if you look at just diagnoses, most of these guys don't fit into diagnosis. Most mass murderers don't fit into good diagnosis. It's just sort of this kind of theme, and even the theme isn't very good. It's the best we have. Um, and it's such a kind of a vague theme that it's hard to use it usefully. For, for a diagnosis to be a diagnosis, it has to be useful in some manner. So, okay, we have schizophrenia, and now we have that diagnosis, now we can study it, now we can treat it. Um, but if you have, like, the pseudo-commando, it's too vague, and it's, it'll, you'll start diagnosing half the teenagers, you know, in eighth grade with pseudo-commando disorder. Uh, there was one person who had a, uh, a large, uh, about 400 serial murders, and, and uh, not serial murders, spree killings. They said less than 25% of people had a diagnosable mental illness. Okay, so contagion. This is an interesting article, and I think it's worth reading. This is by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, and he talked about the idea of contagion. And so that, unfortunately, the rates of these murders are, have been going up. The last time I gave this talk, they weren't really going up, but now they actually are. Um, and one of the thoughts is there's this sort of uh, contagiousness to it. And so he link, likened it to a mob mentality. So in a mob, there's kind of each human being has a tipping point. The mob is out there, you know, stealing, looting, burning cars. The first person who does it, obviously, very low threshold for starting to uh, riot. They're breaking things, they're angry, they're, they're getting ball rolling. And then that second person has a threshold of one. He won't do anything unless somebody else is doing it, and so on and so forth, until you have the threshold of five and six. Like, I'm not going to – I seem like a normal, reasonable person most of the time – but I'm not going to break into a, a car and light it on fire. But if everybody in my neighborhood's doing it, who knows what I may end up doing. So it's that, that sort of contagion, the, that the first person to the last person, they're quite very different. So what they're saying is that the first sort of uh, blueprint for these murders was Columbine, for school murders. Now we're talking about specifically. They wrote the script. And so they were really deranged, these guys. And they were... Uh, the, the, one of them was just so antisocial, like no remorse, and he just wanted to kill people. And he was, he's the kind of person you would expect would do something like this, like just awful. Um, but it got less and less. The next per people who started doing these things were less that way. And it was harder to, and then people, is it the music? Is it this? Is it divorce? Is it because they're abused? And they just, we couldn't find a good pattern. And what was more disturbing, according to this article, is that it was kind of spreading the, the threshold. For these, it didn't remain at you got to be an antisocial psycho to kill people. Excuse me for that language. But you have to be a really bad antisocial murderer to do these things, until the point where it gets to this guy, um, Ledoux, who wasn't antisocial and he wasn't psychotic. Um, he was just kind of autism spectrum disorder, kind of like Lanza. Um, he he was an autism spectrum disorder. They're very sort of interested in one subject and. God, it's so sad, but that's the subject he became interested in was Columbine and mass murders. So he was a student of it, just like a student of, uh, you know, like a young kid who wants to be a film director, studies all the great films, and he would study all these things. And so he would uh, make bombs and practice, and he was, he was bright, and he would, he would, it was very sort of matter of fact. And then there was another good quote in this article um, that, 
in the world before Columbine, people like, this is supposed to have quotes on the front and back, uh, played with chemistry sets in their basements and dreamed of being astronauts. Like this guy would post, when after they arrested him, they, they got him, I think, on attempted murder and, you know, uh, they, they were able to get him somehow and they got him into treatment and he's on probation, which is good. Um, but he would, like, they would go look at his videos, like, oh my gosh, this is a killer, let's go look at his videos. You expect something like Cho, this long rant about how I'm going to murder everybody. But his videos were more like, this is how you make a bomb, and it was sort of tedious and boring, and it was more matter-of-fact. Kind of technical. More technical, yes, thank you. Exactly. Um, whoops. So the last part is, you know, Part of the problem is lectures like this, is that we talk about, and I shouldn't do this, uh, but you talk about the killers. Everybody's fascinated with the killers, and you talk about it, and you teach about it, and they do TV shows about it. That helps the contagion, um, because we're all fascinated with it, because this is an old theory that predates Freud, but he was the one who, who coined kind of the death drive. And everybody, he believes, um, has a destructive streaking them. So everybody, you know, has that moment where they just want to smash things and break things and be nihilistic. And so when you hear stories like this, it appeals to our dark side, our subconscious. And so we play a part in perpetuating that, um, which is a bit disturbing. And now we'll talk a little bit about intervention. And unfortunately, there's very little intervention. Um, there are a lot of groups that try to staff cases and talk about these things, and whether they work or not, there's not a lot of good evidence. For one, there's these are still fortunately very rare and make a small percentage of gun homicides in the United States, or homicides, period. Um, so there, it's just hard to prove that interventions work. Um, it seems like it worked in the Ledoux case, that they were certain he was going to kill somebody. The, the police intervened and probably saved a lot of lives and a lot of trauma. Um, but as I was saying before, even if you had a really good profile, let's say they're all narcissistic, all their parents are divorced, and they listen to heavy metal music, and they're below six feet tall. You say, okay, then we really know. We know who it is. Um, you still wouldn't be able to find him because that, that's millions of people. So uh, even if, you know, hundreds of thousands of make little threats like, oh, I hate my brother. I'm just going to kill him. I think, you know, Columbine, those guys were awesome. Kids say stupid shit all the time. And we can't put all of them into the hospital. We can't intervene on all of them. So the science is still lacking badly for interventions. Uh, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to intervene. It doesn't mean that... Um, the science won't get better, but as of now, it's still pretty sparse. And we had a case which we could talk about, but I'd rather see if anybody has questions before I talk anymore.